like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to let the children be dismissed as quietly as possible with Mrs. Hopper Junior Church. By the way, if you don't know it, April 15th is coming. So if for some reason you uh, have overlooked that, be prepared. And if for some of us this last week was a, uh, the time that we finally got around to it, and uh, so it's good to get that monkey off the back. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 26 and go down through verse 5 of chapter 2 this morning. How many of you uh, watched the NCAA March Madness tournament? Number of you watched that? Okay, I see a number of heads shaking yes. I didn't watch it. Saw bits and pieces of it at various places. If it was on my TV, I'll confess that I would have been watching it. Uh, emerging in the NCAA tournament uh, this past March was a, a story that was quite captivating, even to people that aren't into basketball. And it was the story about a team that was emerging out of this. I think they start with, is it 60-some teams? Am I correct? 64, okay. I actually had that fact right in my mind. Okay, 64 teams, and then they kind of boil that down to the final four. I think first they have the, uh, whatever the 16 is, Sweet 16, and then the Elite Eight, and then the final four, and then the game that everybody's waiting for. A lot of the schools that participate in that tournament are enormous opponents. They are huge schools and have a large student body to draw from to get together a team that will be competitive. One story that began to emerge was about a school named Davidson. And what was fascinating about their accomplishments getting all the way to the Elite Eight was that they came from a school that in many, and by and large, was one-tenth of the size of the competition that they were facing. Most of the time, and sometimes the odds were even higher in terms of the population of the school and the power of that school to attract students and all those sorts of things. And many people that aren't into basketball got a little bit caught up in the story about a small school who was going against schools like in North Carolina State or you know, uh, UNLV, those, the bigger powerhouses that have been there forever. They're the standards in the sport. There was a bit of a buzz about all that was happening. And could they pull it off and make it to the Final Four? And could they do the unthinkable? I have a question for you this morning. It's this. What makes that story, that kind of story, so attractive? What makes it so compelling? What causes people that normally don't watch basketball to want to watch it? So that the rating levels kept going up and up. Why? More and more people were watching. It's one of the things that made the Super Bowl this year. A fascinating story because you had a gigantic opponent and you had a team, the New York Giants, that we all know is absolutely nothing. <laughs> Sorry, Bobby. I don't know what I just said, okay? But I, I know it was offensive. Okay, what, what made that attractive, what made the Davidson story so attractive is that average ability people were doing great things. 
The truth is, what makes that attractive is the fact that most of us are what? We're average. We are aware of our limitations. We are aware of our weaknesses. We are aware of our baggage. We are aware of the things that hold us down, that keep us back. And we think that that is necessarily a disability. We think that that is a negative. And so we tend to kind of step out of the Christian life or live on the peripheral of church life. Because we're honest about ourselves. We're average. We're average. And this morning from this passage of Scripture, there is a question that, that the text begs to ask. And the question is this, who does God use? When God wants to move to work in a community, in a state, in a nation, who does God use? And I want to tell you something very clearly this morning. He doesn't use the people that you or I would use. Here's the humbling truth. He doesn't need the people that you or I would use. He sometimes uses them, but he is not in heaven wringing his hands looking for some highly gifted, highly unique, highly capable individuals to do his work. Now, you know what he's looking for? He's looking for people that are willing to step to the plate and say, God, two words that changed Moses' life in the book of Exodus. Use me. We are, by and large, an average church. We're full of average or typical people in our culture, in our context. And God's desire is this. I want to use you. And what my goal this morning is this. It is to encourage you to show up for the game of Christian living. To not kind of sit back and say, I oh, will never do it. We'll never be effective. God can never use me. No, my desire this morning is to say to you that God has, by His sovereign design, selected you and desires to use your life. Do not deny Him His rights to your life in the work of taking the good news of Christ and His life-changing work out into the world around you. Don't underestimate what God can do through your life. Now, I want to drive at answering this question. Who does God use? By first answering this question. Who does God select? Who does God select? Now, I know when I bring up this topic of election that all kinds of bells and whistles go off in our heads. All of the imponderable questions that God's electing work raises. And here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm not even going to try to answer your questions this morning. Okay? All I'm going to do is tell you what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says in a preponderance of evidence of the fact that God selected. If you are in Christ, God has a plan for your life. And God had a plan for your life. That's all I conclude can conclude from the preponderance of evidence in this passage. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, called by God. Go to verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, called to be holy. Verse 9. God who has called you into fellowship with His Son. Then flip ahead a little bit to verse 24. But to those whom God has called. Verse 27. You've got to flip over a page if you have my Bible. 
But God chose the foolish things of the world. Verse 28. He chose the lowly things. Verse 30. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. Meaning, if you have come to personal faith in Christ, God worked in your heart and it is because of Him. It's not owing to you. It's owing to Him that you are now in Christ. Okay, so the first thought I want to lay before you, if you have trusted the Savior, here's what I know. God worked in your heart through His Spirit to bring you to a place where you would repent and believe and trust in His life-saving work. That should encourage your heart. You can't sit back and take credit for a decision that you made. All you can say is that God convinced me of my sin and brought me to a place where I placed saving faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, that leads me then to the rest of this text. Begins in verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Okay? Now, what is Paul doing? I believe Paul is referencing when he came to Corinth and began to proclaim the message of the gospel and people started to come to faith in Christ. Brothers, think of what you were. And this is obviously inclusive. Brothers and sisters in the church, remember what your life was like before God called you. Think of the kinds of people that God chose. And notice what he says. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Now let me just quick touch base on this. All of that is negative, right? And, and, and I want you to notice this. It says, not many of you. Okay, it's not an exclusive statement saying, none of you are these things. Because if you go through this text, you go to Romans 16, you go to Acts chapter 18, which are passages that kind of tie in with the Corinthian story, you're going to find that there are some of pretty heavy accomplishment, heavy weighted people in terms of influence and power. But what Paul wants to make clear is that while some within the church came selected by God from noble backgrounds. And notice the words that he uses. Not many wise. That is, those by human standards. You notice how Paul says that not many of you were wise by human standards. Okay, meaning the world wouldn't have picked you out. But God did. Okay, and this is what gets powerful. Not many wise, that is, with high IQ or intellect by human standards. Not many influential. We use the word people who have power. You know what the word means in the original? It's the idea in context. It's clout, influence, political standing, posturing, those sorts of ideas. Hi, Tim Matthews. He told me, he warned me that he might come, and there he is. We're glad to see you. Really glad to see you. You want to stand up and share? No, I'm just kidding. It's good to have you here. Good to have you here. Answer to prayer. Not many powerful, well-connected to City Hall. Not many, and this is, next is fascinating, not many well-born is the idea here. Meaning significant backgrounds. Okay? I mean, look at the church. Look at us. Look at us. We're just a slice out of God's world. A slice out of His church, the larger picture of what He's doing. And when you look at the way God puts the church together, you realize, that, you realize this. He will and can use people of influence. The humbling truth is this. He doesn't need people of influence. 
And if you, if you can just understand that, grasp that. Some are, but God in His grace takes a selection of the, of the cross-section of society because that's the word He's called us to reach and to influence. Have you ever made this mistake, thought about a certain individual and thought, so-and-so would make a good, what? They make a good Christian. Okay? Throw that at this text and see if it sticks. Boy, if they came to Christ, then what are we doing? We're making the mistake. That fatal comparison that drives us into uselessness, thinking that our life really doesn't count. God flies back in the face of that and says, look, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were this. Verse 27 flips it over and gives us the contrast. But God chose the... This is not flattering. Okay, this is a description of us. What did He choose? By the world's reckoning, He chose things that were foolish. Why? To, and, and by the way, the word foolish is the word morona in the Greek. You know where that's going, right? Okay. That's God chose the foolish things. He chose lesser things. Why? Because He didn't want it to be about us. The church in America has a problem. You get an athlete that becomes a Christian, what do we do? We're going to throw them up on a pedestal right away and we destroy them. Because what's the church saying? Let's be honest. We get a trophy. No, God has a trophy. And God doesn't need people of such great influence to change the world that you and I live in. What He needs is willing, weak, lacking status people. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. Rest of the verse. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose the lowly and the despised. And here's the idea of lowly and despised. The ones that everybody else ignores and looks past. Does that sound like uh, when you were a kid in the playground and they started to choose teams? Everybody loved that, didn't they? The athletic ones loved it. Right? In the, in the game of life, everybody's done picking and you're still standing there and God says, I can use you. Folks, let that encourage your heart. And if God has given you higher, better capabilities, remember this. It's a gift from Him. And He wants to use you to do His work. Your life has meaning, has incredible and significant purpose in the kingdom of God. Ray Stedman put it this way. He said the rest of them were the common, ordinary people of the city. Meaning, not many wise and noble. Some, some, but not many. The rest of the church was made up of common, ordinary people of the city. Those whom the world regarded as foolish. Many of them were slaves. Perhaps unknown people. Ordinary, plain, vanilla people like you and me. The people in the church in Corinth, quite frankly, were people that you and I would be comfortable with. They're like us. God uses some very bright people. He regularly uses average people. Don't ever forget that. You look in the mirror and you see what you are in reality. The full truth. The unvarnished truth. You look at yourself and say, God can use you. Because it's not about me. It's about His power dwelling in me through the work of His Spirit. Look back at verse 25 real quick, just to, to set this pace a little bit. God chooses us. God 
calls us to live effectively for His purposes, even though we're not impressive by human standards. Verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. What is that saying? That's saying when you are united with God through the work of the Spirit, what happens? You are capable of doing things that are beyond your capabilities or abilities. That's what happens. The things that you think you can't do, you can do with God. Why? Because God, on His weakest day, is stronger than the strongest man. Okay, sometimes we make a mistake. What do we say? I was having a bad day. Right? That's the absolving kind of confession. I was having a bad day. Folks, do you understand this? God never has a bad day. On his worst day, which he can't even have. In his weakest moment, which he can't have. He is stronger than the mightiest thing that you will face in your life. Let that sink in. That means if I am united with God Almighty through the work of His Spirit, I can do everything that is in relationship to His will in my life for His glory. Because He chose the foolish things so that He might bring to nothing the things that act or look like they are. God does not need impressive people. That's why He didn't choose a lot of them. Because He is not in need of them. He doesn't need Phi Beta Capus. Okay? He can use average, regular, normal people. How do we qualify to be used by Him? That's the next question that comes up, isn't it? If we know ourselves, and we know our sinfulness, and we know that God is holy, He desires to unite with us to work for His glory, but we have something that keeps us from Him, and we know that He works in our hearts in this effective calling sort of way, but how does a sinner become useful to a God who is utterly and completely holy? And the answer to that question is found in the next verse. God chose us, Weak, foolish, but how is it that he can draw near to us? Verse 30 says this. It says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of him who has become for us wisdom from God. Jesus is the plan of God by which he rescues in his wisdom sinners from their state of rebellion and makes them instruments that he can use. How does he do it? And I want you, this is one of the most beautiful, solid statements about the doctrine of salvation that, that is present in the Bible. God has made him wisdom for us, Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Fascinating, isn't it? He is our righteousness, he is our holiness. Some translations are going to have the word sanctification, which is probably a better translation here, and redemption. What is it that Jesus Christ is to us in the wisdom of God? He first makes us acceptable to God. That's righteousness. From Him, we receive a status that we could not achieve on our own. Why? Because we all start in the same place. All right? If I live the first 10 years of my life as a sinner, apart from God, come to faith in Christ at 10 years old, live the rest of my life perfectly, I am still, by definition, a sinner, an imperfect person, right? Why? Because I, in spite of the fact that for the next 30 years of my life, I do everything I'm supposed to do, but in the first 10 years, I didn't do what I'm supposed to do. On that test morally, I get a 75. Right? The fact that I live a day decently well doesn't mean it wipes out all the bad days. Wrong is still wrong. 
Okay? What does Jesus do? He becomes for us righteousness. I love the song, Knowing You. Okay? To be found in you and to be clothed in what? In your righteousness. To be given a status that causes God to say, I can use you. I can work with you. And then he says this. He also becomes our sanctification. Sanctification is this. It is the process of becoming holy. Not only does he make us righteous, a status, but he progressively makes us pure and clean so that we become increasingly useful. And then the last word that he uses is, we become, he becomes for us our redemption. And this is the word that fascinates me the most. Redeemed means to be purchased out of a slave market and given freedom. Made useful to a new owner. Folks, think about this. When you come to faith in Christ and He cleans you up and He progressively makes you cleaner, what is He doing? He is increasing your usefulness in His kingdom. And you have to contribute the, the responsibility for that work to Jesus Christ. Why? He became for you righteousness, holiness, and redemption. He brings you to a place of usefulness through His cross work. So, when I'm standing before God useful, my usefulness is not owing to my performance or reformation in my life. It is owing to the work of God. What contribution did I make to this change? What is my part in this transformation? The answer to that question is dramatically humbling. Which brings us to greater usefulness. Why? Because we know that the change in our heart, this difference, the fact that Tim Hopp is still married to the same woman, I believe is owing to the grace of God and to a wonderful woman. I, I have often thought, where would I be without Christ? How utterly messed up would my life be without the grace of God? What direction would I have gone? without Him working in my heart. And that is humbling territory. And what Paul wants us to know very, very clearly as he moves into a very dangerous statement in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 is that what has happened in our lives is owing to completely the grace of God. We did not make a contribution to our salvation, our redemption, our becoming useful. That's a result of His very kind and powerful work in our lives. That leads to the verse that I skipped, verse 29. God chose lowly things, verse 28. Things that are despised, things that are not. That's what God chose. Why? So that, the, so that no one may boast. My fourth thought is this. We exist to proclaim, or we exist for His glory and His purposes. In other words, the outworking of our life. Why did God choose weak things to do great things? So when great things are done, nobody's looking at the instrument. They're looking at the one who's behind the instrument, who's wielding the instrument, who's using the instrument, who's empowering the instrument. That's why God did it that way. So verse 29, He did this so that no one may boast before God. You find two things, one in verse 29 and one in verse 31. First thing you find is this. You find a prohibition. Okay, a prohibition. Do not boast. That's very clear. And then you find a contradiction to that in verse 31. Let him boast, which is a command. 
Verse 29, a prohibition so that no one can boast. Verse 31, boast in what God has done. Fascinating contrast, isn't it? You see, when I do what I can do, I get what I'm able to accomplish. When God does what he can do, something glorious emerges. Folks, that's why it's foolish for us to look at ourselves and diminish our value in the kingdom of God by comparing ourselves to others. And isn't that what we often do? We compare ourselves. We foolishly compare ourselves. And God's saying, don't, don't, don't try to see yourself as something great. Be humbled by my work in your life. Be humbled by my grace in your life. It's owing to the work of God. Ray Stedman said this. He said, the kindest thing that God can do is to find a way to puncture and deflate my sinful pride, collapse that platform of prestige, and shatter that illusion of self-sufficiency. And how many of us just simply hate when that happens? Folks, it is the kindness of God. When He punctures our pride, when He devastates the platform of self-sufficiency, and brings us to a place where we're like Moses and we're saying to God, God, I'm willing, but if you're not going with me, I refuse. But if you're going, I'll go. And I believe that to be the testimony of the Apostle Paul. A man who was shattered by the revelation of Jesus Christ, whose balloon of pride was severely punctured by the presence of Christ, whose platform of prestige was devastated by the power of Christ. Paul never complains about that humbling moment, ever. You know what Paul says? Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the cross of Christ. The Christ who uses me, a rebel, a sinner, who persecuted the church of Christ, he uses me. And you know what? Paul never got over being humbled by the fact that he was a sinner, rescued by the powerful grace of God and made an instrument that God could so powerfully use. Jesus, verse 30 says, made us, became for us, Wisdom, that is, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And then verse 31 goes back to Jeremiah 9, verse 24. Quoting from the Old Testament, Let him who boasts, let the one who is going to brag, brag about what God has done. And that becomes the idea here. The work, the transformation, the usefulness that God brings into our lives is owing to His work through His Spirit. And may I say this morning that I believe that this is the foundation, the ground, and the essence of worship. If you don't worship when you're at the foot of the cross, you will never worship. Ever. Ever. Paul gets to the cross in verse 30, and in verse 31, all he can say, let him who boasts, boast in what God has done, in what he has accomplished. The result is a humble, humble self-effacing tool that now God can use. And what I want you to notice is, in verses 1 through 5 of the following chapter, Paul's going to do something that is exceedingly awkward. He's going to talk about himself. Remember the context. Go back, I think, to verse 17 or 18. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Jesus. Remember that? That's the setting here. Now, Paul is going to talk about himself. In response to that 
schismatic or divisive spirit that's present in the church where people are thinking, well, I'm this and I'm that, I'm with him and I'm with her. And that divisive kind of mindset, Paul is going to speak out to that and use himself in a self-deprecating way as an illustration of the glory and grace of God. Here's why Paul boasts in Christ alone. Verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, that I believe this to be the first visitation at the church in Corinth, Acts chapter 18. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Get down to verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. What is Paul saying? Understand this, if Paul is a Pharisee and was seated in the Sanhedrin, which is what we assume from much of the text in the book of Acts, if he is of that caliber, that quality of a person, likely had memorized the book of Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy, the five writings of Moses, likely had memorized it. What Paul's saying is this, I could have wowed you with the rhetoric of the age. I could have stunned you with eloquence. But if, in the process of speaking so eloquently, I in some way diminish the value of the cross of Christ, Paul says, God forbid. God forbid. So when I came, he says, I didn't come with stunning rhetoric or with fancy and powerful words. Why? And I want to just give you three thoughts to close. The instruments that God uses, number one, do not depend on their abilities. So that if you look at your life and say, Pastor Tim, I don't have much in the way of skills and abilities. My response to you is going to be perfect. Perfect. Why? Because God doesn't need all of your abilities. You should make them available. But he is not sitting in heaven wringing his hands about what is he going to do? He can use weak things to do the amazing things. Paul did not ply in their trade. He didn't come with superior speech. He didn't speak with prominence and superiority. He didn't depend on his innate capacities and argumentation and rhetoric. In fact, you find something different, don't you? Look at verse 3. I don't hear most men saying something like this. I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling. The Greek word for trembling is tremo. It just, you start to see the connection. Paul says, I came to you. I was overwrought with anxiety because I knew the size of the task. Now think about that. Most of us see Paul preaching and we think, oh, that's just Paul. That's not me. And what does Paul say? No. Paul's saying that shaking, trembling, tremoring man was me. And if you saw anything in my life of boldness and of courage, that was God. Do you see? Paul says, when it comes to speaking the words of Christ, I become bold and courageous but internally. What am I? I am weak. I'm shaking. I have a friend that's a missionary in Scotland. His name is Don Dillman. I will never forget him saying to me at one point, I said, how are you doing? He said, I am scared stiff in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Folks, that is the testimony of Paul. In the flesh, afraid. Afraid. Feeling inadequate, overwhelmed. And if you have ever sought to share Christ, if you seek opportunities to share your faith in Christ, you know what this is like. 
how do I, a human being, get another human being to give up their view of the world, that life isn't about accomplishments and achievements and them being number one. It's about them humbling themselves before the foot of the cross. You know what it is for the words to turn sideways and for your heart to become anxious as you seek to proclaim why you feel so inadequate. And that is the cause of silence for many of us. We haven't come to the place where we realize that the message of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. I don't have to convince people. Sometimes I, buy, I like apologetics, I like debate, I like discussion. You know what happens? Very few people come to Christ through apologetics and argumentation. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, Let everyone be pre prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in them. And we tend to think that means an argumentative response. What it means is a clear, powerful presentation of the cross, Christ, Him crucified, risen, and coming again. That's what it is. Be prepared to give an adequate explanation of what Christ has done. Why? Because that is the power of God. And may I say that any person in this room that knows Christ can do that. If they would yield to the power of God. God needs people that don't depend on their abilities. People who see that their weakness is not a deterrent to effectiveness. It may be the cause of your effectiveness. Secondly, they are people that are determined to exalt Christ and His cross. Look at verse 2. Paul says, I was with you as I proclaimed the testimony of God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now folks, can I say this, please? You can do that. You and I can do that for people. Paul says, I determined, that's why I didn't use rhetoric, Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. That should click on the lights of hope in our lives that God can use us. The problem is that we're often silenced by our fears, silenced by our weakness, not depending on the awesome and incredible power of God. And I want you to notice in verse 2, Paul says, I determined, I resolved. The idea of this word in the original is, in the past I made a choice that my life would be about proclaiming Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I will not go back on that commitment. Folks, have you made that kind of choice? Have you resolved, as Paul says? Have you determined, have you decided to have nothing be prominent in your life except the cross of Christ? Romans 1.17, Paul would say this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why, Paul? Why? Why aren't you silent about the cross of Christ? Here's what Paul says, It is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes. So Paul says, when I'm around, that's what I'm going to talk about. Because that's the message that changes lives. And one other truth emerges in verses 4 through 5. In verse 3, after saying, it came to you with weakness and fear and much trembling. Verse 4, he says this, my message and my preaching were not with persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Folks, there is nothing that will embolden you for witness for Christ like the indwelling presence of God through His Spirit. And you consciously saying, Lord, today I want to stay in step with your plan, with your Spirit, so that I can be an effective witness to the greatest truth in the world, the wisdom of God, that righteousness comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And that for Paul changed his entire perspective 
and change his entire life. Are you willing, my friend, this morning to be a spirit-saturated witness for Christ? Please understand this. Our weakness, those that God has chosen, our weakness is so pronounced that God in His mercy and in His wisdom sent to every Christian His personal presence. The indwelling of His Spirit. Any usefulness for God, any evangelism that God uses you to do is always a cooperative effort. Do you ever have the joy, the incredible privilege of seeing someone confess, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He is my righteousness and my redemption. If you ever have the privilege to see that happen, it is owing to the work of God. Because evangelism is always a cooperative effort. Usefulness in the kingdom of God. It's always a cooperative effort. It's never done apart from God. Why? Go back to verse 29. So that no one can what? Boast. Verse 31. So that everyone can boast about what God has done. My family, when I was four years old, was first introduced to the gospel of Christ by a man who sold groceries door to door. A very average man surrendered to the cause of Christ. Sold groceries door to door out of a paneled van. Didn't think that he was too weak for God to use him. So on all of his stops, you know what he did? He chose, he decided, verse 2, he determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ. Did my uncle's funeral two years ago. I counted in my immediate family 60 people who have come to faith in Christ because when Frank Robinson sold groceries to my mom, he spoke about Christ. My uncle came to Christ two years late, two weeks later. Were baptized with my parents, and then this cascading effect. Because someone weak was so bold as to think that God could use them. I'm grateful. I am very grateful that someone weak believed that God could use him. How about you? You're armed with the most powerful message on planet Earth. And God wants to use your life. Maybe you're here this morning, you've heard the powerful message. If you never have found in Christ, by grace alone, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, and ultimately usefulness in the kingdom of God, He so wants to use your life. Would you cry out to Him from your seat this morning? Would you just bow your head and say, God, I am a broken sinner, and I sense your spirit calling and drawing on my heart. And I want to be saved by your grace. And if you're as a Christian this morning, maybe you need to go to God and say, God, I've been sitting on the sidelines of life, uh, strangely silent, armed with the greatest message in the world. A message that's greater than Davidson won the NCAA tournament, which would have been beautiful news, but it's nothing Nothing compared to the message of the gospel of Christ. 
Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, we thank you.